Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Military History, a podcast offered by the New Books Network channel. My name is Alex Beckstrand, and I'm one of the hosts here on the network. Uh, Today, I am delighted to be joined by Shannon Bontrager. Uh, He is a professor of history at Georgia Highlands College. And today, we're going to be discussing his book, Death at the Edges of Empire, Fallen Soldiers, Cultural Memory, and the Making of an American Nation, 1863 to 1921. This book was released uh, in 2020 by the University of Nebraska Press. And uh, with that, uh, Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this uh, talking about this book. Wonderful. I was wondering if just initially uh, you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how it is that you got interested in this project. Well, um, I uh, grew up in, in rural Michigan. Um, I, the f- I'm a first-generation college student. My dad um, hung drywall for a living and was a cabinet builder, and my mom was a, a seamstress and a teacher's assistant for many years. And um, I guess what kind of got me onto the topic, even at an early age, is um, a couple of events that I experienced growing up in rural Michigan. One was um, the death of my grandmother, um, Mary Bontrager, who uh, was the first sort of experience with death that I had. And um, my grandparents were Amish um, for the first 40 years of their lives or so, and they left and were shunned. And at my grandmother's funeral, um, my my Amish relatives uh, defied the bishop's edict uh, that forbid them to go to her funeral, and and they showed up to pay their respects uh, to my grandmother, and uh, that was a moment that really showed me how uh, dead bodies could be political, and um, and so that sort of really got me thinking about death and religion, and and then about the uh, uh, about the same time. Uh, of course, being growing up in the 1980s as um, the aftermath of the Vietnam War, uh, I remember distinctly perhaps one of the first political sort of awakenings that I had was when uh, President Ronald Reagan uh, commemorated the the, uh, the Vietnam Unknown Soldier, uh, and. Uh, it was very, very interesting to me. I watched that the ceremony on television, and um, 
again, sort of this idea of how the political lives of dead bodies, if you will, had a, a national component to it. And so I think even from a very early age, from my background and the time that I was born and the time that I was growing up in America, uh, I kind of found this connection that was on the one hand personal and um, intimate and on the level of my family. And uh, there was a connection I felt to the national level in that the way that we remember the dead uh, play a very important part in in us creating our own identity as an individual, but also as part of the nation and part of the community. And so I, I think those ideas always stuck with me. And as I got older, I was fortunate enough to be able to to research and investigate them. Yeah. Was there, was there a particular thought, uh, you know, in, in putting in the, the particular time frame that you chose 1863 to 1921? And I know it's, it's sort of bookended by, uh, you know, Gettysburg and, and, the, and the tomb of the unknown soldiers, but um, was, was there a particular reason why you chose maybe not to go earlier or later than that or smaller? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, there's a specific reason for that periodization, which is a bit strange. That's not usually how the historiography would periodize that. But 1863 um, is is when the Gettysburg Address is when Abraham Lincoln is, um, issues the Gettysburg Address or de- delivers it, and so that's the beginning of what I'm kind of describing as this period of cultural memory. And then 1921 is when the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is um, first dedicated. There were unknown warriors and Poilu in Canoes in in France and Britain uh, the year before. But uh, in America, this is the dedication date for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So those are my two uh, bookends in terms of of the project. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, could you could you also just sort of elaborate it before we go into further discussion, um, just as sort of an, an upfront explanation of what uh, the, the general thesis of, of the book is? Sure. Uh, I think the way what I'm trying to argue is that America is an empire. Um, and my argument is that the evidence of this imperialistic imperialistic nature um, can be uh, detected in the way that Americans have built up rituals and traditions around their commemorative practices of the war dead. Uh, when we commemorate the war dead, I think we can see an imperialistic nature there that, that sometimes... Um, we were not necessarily ready to acknowledge. And so I've tried to, I've tried to argue that throughout the book. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things I found interested uh, with, with the book was this sort of this, this interconnection of uh, other areas of study. And in, in particular, you know, based on the, the topic of the book, you bring in some sort of neurological science um, and some memory studies. And, uh, so could you kind of 
you know, and you talk about that in your in, in your introduction as well. Uh, but could you describe some of uh, of of how that relates to the book, um, and, and specifically regarding your discussions of cultural and collective memory? Yeah. So there's um, there for my for this work, there's uh, a there's a there's a problem in that we have these biological or these internal memories that the individual has. And the argument that I'm making is that we also can connect to have a collective memory, that we all can have a memory about an event. And the way that the neurological aspect comes into this is the that our memories, which we should say at the beginning, are completely unreliable. Our memories are not very good because when we have an experience, that experience is largely neurological. It's a chemical and electric process that our neurons fire and they send uh, messages to our, to our brain. And our mind um, then works very hard to organize and sift and filter those experiences through our previous experiences. And then um, the mind will, quote unquote, store those memories um, in our neurological uh, framework. And when we recall those memories, our minds will, um, in essence, as we're recalling, will make adaptations to the memory. Uh, It will make small or significant subtractions or additions to the memory, depending upon what we're experiencing in the present. So memory is really important. It's a coping mechanism for us to deal with our our reality. Um, And in essence, that uh, process is an internal process. And it really can't be transmitted to another person, except that as human beings, we have this this need to socially interact with each other. And one thing that our mind does in deciding which memories to trim or pair or or delete or add or subtract is we go through a social interaction. So if we have a memory with someone else, we can talk about that. And that talking through the memory helps mind verify and figure out what we remember. So our memories here can be shared through a social interaction. And in essence, what I'm arguing then, um, this, this kind of moves us from biology to, you know, sociology. And then, and then from sociology, we can go to culture that when we share these memories on a community level or eventually in any kind of group, we're beginning to form what's called a social memory. and that social memory can be expanded and connected to a larger social network that uh, will then allow us to think about cultural experiences. And we can then begin to synchronize our biological memories with the, um, the cultural experiences that we all share. So, I know that's a bit technical and difficult to sort of maybe think about, but basically what I just described to you, it can be summed up with a question like, where were you when 9-11 happened? And 
we all have a memory that we can then share and synchronize and think about. And then that kind of idea becomes a cultural uh, force in and of itself. And what, what, what then becomes a cultural memory. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. And that's actually, that's a, it's an interesting exercise to, to go through, um, you know, whether it's nine 11 or, or some other particular, you know, uh, famous or infamous event. Um, and, and I think that that kind of segues, I think nicely, <clears throat> you know, sort of going back then in time, um, you know, this idea of, of uh, you talk about this idea of the good death in the civil, uh, excuse me, prior to the civil war. Um, uh, first off, can you just kind of describe what, what that is and then how does that idea change with, with the civil war and specifically with Lincoln? Sure. sure. So the good death is an excellent example of a cultural memory. If we go back before the civil war to an America that is largely disconnected, there's not a lot of roads or, or, um, you know, the government's very small, a small bureaucratic system. It doesn't really connect a lot of people. What the, the one major cultural force that connected people was Christianity and in particular Protestant Christianity that um, had this idea of the afterlife of salvation. And basically what the good death is, is this kind of Victorian Christian idea that um, the living really need to know whether the dead have gone to heaven or not. And so the ideal, the, the, the so-called good death is this, this, this ideal death setting where someone is dying, they're on their deathbed, they're at home, they're surrounded by their family and um, everybody's there. It's this sort of intimate family experience. And, and then somewhere along the line, um, at the moment when someone passes on, they're, they're reading into their, the, the facial expressions, the breathing, uh, everything that the person who is dying is experiencing. They're reading into that, trying to determine if they have gone to, if they've been saved or not. So a lot of times there's this person who's dying will have... Um, a moment where they might gasp, but then they kind of, you know, release the tension and, and they die, but the, the, the facial expression is more relaxed. And so everybody will say, oh, this, this is evidence that they've gone to heaven. It's a very middle-class kind of thing to do, uh, a, a middle-class process, um, but people do this all the time. And it, in essence, um, becomes practiced by families across across the country, at least middle class families. What you could argue that Abraham Lincoln, when he dies, goes through a similar sort of process, except let's say it's less uh, religious. I, I don't mean to say it's not religious. It is a religious moment. But if, if, if you recall how you learned about Lincoln after he's assassinated, he's taken across the street and he's put in this bed and everybody's around him and and it, it takes several hours, but he eventually dies. And then all these eyewitnesses verify that not only has he gone to heaven, but he died for, for the nation. And so Lincoln himself, you could argue, 
experiences this kind of good death, but on a nationalistic level. Now, uh, what I argue is before Lincoln died, when he gave the Gettysburg Address in the middle of the Civil War, is that he took this idea of the good death and he kind of democratized it for everyone uh, in, in his short speech. Um, the problem with the Civil War is that hardly anybody can experience the good death. At least the soldiers can't because they're off on the battlefield and they die alone usually uh, in massive numbers, numbers that have never been seen before in American history. And so this causes a lot of uh, tension and chaos for loved ones who have no way to verify whether their their soldier loved one went to heaven or not. And so what Lincoln does, if you read the Gettysburg Address really carefully and closely and think about it from this perspective of the good death, what I think he's doing there is he's establishing this idea that these soldiers have died for the nation, that even if they died alone on the battlefield, they died for a noble cause, a new birth of freedom. And because of that, America's Americans uh, and the and the bureaucratic infrastructure of the nation state are committed to remembering um, remembering these dead forever. And um, so I think what he's doing there is taking these kind of religious ideas and and turning them into a political argument, but also a, 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 a an argument of cultural memory. Yeah. Okay. And and in in addition to this, uh, you know, sort of sort of the transformation of of the good death um, with with the Civil War and the way Lincoln tried to to push that with his Gettysburg, Gettysburg Address, um, you know, in the post Civil War era, uh, there's there's also this sort of expanding federal government um, and and this idea of sort of needing needing support from from the public. And so is there. Is there some sort of connection that you kind of make between the, the, the expansion of the federal government apparatus and, and the need for support and to the sacrifice and the deaths of soldiers in the Civil War? So what Lincoln, I think, is doing here is he's refuting the ideas of Alexis de Tocqueville, this Frenchman who traveled throughout the United States in the, the early 19th century. Um what de Tocqueville describes in his description of collective memory is that um, Americans, democratic societies, are forgetful. They're forgetful because they forget the individual's obligation to society. That's what democracy does, de Tocqueville argues. Remember, de Tocqueville is coming from this kind of uh, you know, feudalistic European society. And he argues that Europeans are much better at remembering because everybody understands their, their place in life. And in America, de Tocqueville is saying this, this is a land of forgetting, basically. And um, what Lincoln is doing is he kind of refuting that. He's basically saying, you know, all these soldiers died um, and we have to remember them. So there's that, that, that sort of um, tension there between these two ideas of memory. Um, this is important because the argument here is that as the 19th century unfolds, 
not only is it that democracy is um, pushing people to forget, but we're going through these incredibly convulsive, uh, chaotic processes. Uh, the Civil War, for example, the Industrial Revolution, and then the large, the enlarging government bureaucratic, uh, I guess, apparatus um, are in essence they're, they're well. The Civil War is killing individuals, so it's destroying communities destroying families mm-hmm. uh, the industrial revolution is doing the same thing because nobody can you know it, it's not you can't have a job on the farm with the family anymore you've got, got to go to the big city and and work in a factory and so it it it, it tears families apart socially and economically um, and then the government um, apparatus is going to enlarge to try to uh, moderate that and here, I think, is another sort of important function. What Lincoln is doing with the Gettysburg Address is he's obligating the governments to remember these soldiers. Now, whether the government will remember, you know, working class people in the factories when they die, that's another another story. But here uh, he's saying that the government is going to is, is obligated to to remember those who died for this this new nation. And so there, I think, is where we can kind of think about how the government bureaucracy enlarging is trying to deal with this uh, this breaking apart of of society on so many different levels. Okay, yeah, and how so? Then how how does the federal government get into the uh, you get into sort of the actions of setting up national cemeteries at various points across the country? So I think this is quite interesting because it's not the government who initiates this. It's basically they're getting complaints from um, from families across the country. Uh, you know, they didn't have dog tags or you know um, any kind of identification ways to identify soldiers, and so loved ones they don't know what happens to their their you know their fathers or their brothers or or their lovers or or what have you there. They're, uh, they go to fight. Maybe they're in, in a prison, uh, like at Andersonville. Maybe they're dead. Maybe they've, you know, um, somehow are wandering the countryside. They've become disconnected from their unit. Uh, there's no way to understand this. So a lot of people begin to look for the missing. Clara Barton, uh, for example, starts this government. Um, well, it's her own private work that she asked the government to help fund uh, just to get the names of missing men and to try to connect them with, with families. Uh, and, and accompanying this, there's all kinds of people who are writing in and asking what, what's happened to my son. I'm not receiving letters from them anymore. And so the government is forced to act here. Um, the government's also forced to act because the battlefield is just, there's just so many people who are dying that, um, it's in the middle of the battlefield. Uh, there is this attempt to bury them, but sometimes they bury them in a section of the battlefield that the next day becomes the battlefield. And, um, there's all kinds of fears that the dead can cause disease, um, so the government has to also act on this level just to, uh, in a pragmatic kind of way, uh, to, to deal with the, the dead from the actual fighting. So Congress in, uh, I think it's in 1862, just 
about the time shortly before the Gettysburg Address, they appropriate money and they allow the military generals to basically at first set sections aside uh, that will then, as time goes on, become what's called the national cemetery system. Uh, but it's something that the government doesn't necessarily lead on. They're kind of they're kind of following. Yeah, and and one of you know, you focus on Marietta uh, in Georgia, and in, in another way of sort of the government following. In, in that sense, uh, I think you kind of point out that um, there's there's sort of this this idea of showing loyalty um, to the to the Union after the Civil War by you know, presenting land that can be used as, as burial grounds uh, to the government to then, which then ends up leads to this creation of this, this national cemetery. So in a way, that's another way that the government's not necessarily leading, um, but it's sort of following the, uh, you know, the following what the private citizens in this case are, are doing down in Georgia. Exactly. And of course, that's an interesting, um, I think, case study, because it's, well, North Georgia does have uh, a lot of unionists in the in the region, and here we have a family um, in Marietta, Georgia, who do- donates their land to the United States for a you know a national cemetery, and and there's a lot of people uh, in Marietta and surrounding areas who are really upset with this, and and so it becomes a really interesting case study of how this idea of federalism and national um, commemorations can be um, a partnership between a a local, important um, family cooperating with the federal government um, to to kind of impose this idea on a population, some of who would they would agree with it and some who would be very much offended by it. Yes. And so leading into that, this is sort of the first section of the book. Um, you focus on a few cemeteries, Marietta being one, um, Sitka National Cemetery in Alaska, and then uh, Arlington National Cemetery. And is there a particular uh, reason why you focused on these cemeteries um, as opposed to maybe other ones? Well, um, a lot of times when you, when at least the way that I do research in the archives is I'm interested in some of the, maybe the cemeteries or the, the, the records that, that, you know, maybe haven't been covered a lot or they're, they're kind of maybe off to the side a little bit. And when I was going through the archives, Marietta and Sitka in Alaska were kind of interesting. There's, there are these small file folders that they have on them. And there's not a lot of attention paid to them in the archival record. And so that's what drew my attention first is just because they were kind of interesting and off to the side. But as I was doing research and writing, I, I found that they, they really played an important part in uh, what I was trying to argue. Marietta, of course, is a great um, way to, um, shall we say, balance the ideas around Arlington National Cemetery. You know, in the 1860s, Arlington National Cemetery is just another national cemetery. It's not necessarily very important at all. It's really to bury the dead who fought 
you know, in and around um, Washington, D.C. and in Virginia. It's, it's a collection of a lot of these dead bodies here. It's, it's not what we might call today the, the Valhalla of the United States, this sacred sort of, uh, you know, most important burial space in the United States. It's, 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 it's not elevated to that level in the 1860s. And, and Marietta allows us to sort of see how this, this um, cultural memory of the dead isn't concentrated just in one place. It's actually dispersed across the nation and in places where, particularly in, in Marietta, Georgia, where um, you wouldn't necessarily think it, it would thrive. Uh, in Sitka, the cemetery there is I think pretty interesting because it allows us to see how um, the Gettysburg Address has transformed. The first soldiers who die in Sitka after the Civil War is over, after the United States acquires Alaska, uh, these these Civil War veterans they fought in the Civil War, but now they're stationed in Alaska. They they uh, they end up dying in Alaska. Um, uh, over a love triangle, um, Lieutenant Kinney has this relationship with this woman, uh, Nadia, uh, who's a Russian woman, uh, in the, in the, the fur trapping, uh, economy out in Alaska. And he, and his friend, who's a captain who, um, we don't know his name, they get involved in a, in a duel over Nadia's um, love. <laughs> and uh, Lieutenant Kinney, actually, they, they say that they're going out on a, on a hunting um, adventure, but it's actually a duel. And Lieutenant Kinney kills his friend in the process. And when he comes back to win Nadia's love, because he won the duel, she, she rejects him. And so a little bit later, he ends up committing suicide. Um, and he leaves a note that um, explains what happened. These are the first two men wow. who die in Sitka, Alaska. And the question becomes, well, so should the Gettysburg Address cover them? Like they, they died in the most ignoble ways. Like it's a terrible way that they died, but they had this experience in the Civil War of, of contributing to this noble cause of this new birth of, of, of the nation. And so what, what, what should you, what should America do? And at first these men are buried, but they don't really receive any recognition. Sitka, Alaska becomes then this unsanctified place in the, in the very edges of the American empire. And uh, despite the efforts of other Civil War veterans who are out in Alaska doing various things uh, to bring American government uh, to this place. Uh, the United States, the War Department, the United States government refused to acknowledge Sitka as a national cemetery. Eventually, it will become um, a national cemetery, but not until the 1920s. So this becomes a way for me to describe how how what Lincoln promised at Gettysburg that, that Americans should uh, remember the war dead has its limits. At least initially it has its limits. There's no real intention here 
to extend Lincoln's promise to the outer reaches of the American empire. They can extend it to the South, to Marietta, Georgia, but, but not to the far reaches of the, of the empire, particularly when people die in, in these sorts of ways. Um, and so those, those two places, I think, play a crucial role here in the argument to sort of show the evolution of how people were changing their memories about the Civil War and about the Gettysburg Address and, and about the war dead. Yeah, and, and so in, I think you kind of transitioned nicely from you know, talking about uh, you know, soldiers being stationed at the uh, or in the outposts of empire in Alaska um, to to you know, maybe maybe something slightly more direct uh, in connection to the empire, which is soldiers dying uh, on the battlefield in the pursuit of empire. Which which here I'm specifically talking about you. Uh, your, your sections on Custer and Little Bighorn. Um, and you talk about this idea of dying uh, for empire. Um, I think you use the phrase of the trope of progress. Um, so can you kind of talk about um, how, how that is sort of inter- interwoven into, into the history? Well, yeah. And here I think is another really interesting moment for tracing this evolution of what I call Lincoln's promise, what, what Lincoln promised at the, at Gettysburg when he helped dedicate the, the cemetery there, um, Custer's death is, is clearly a death for the American empire. Um, he is, and he has a history of this. This isn't just the battle of little bighorn is not just this one off unfortunate moment where Custer dies confronting Native American people. He had a history of attacking um, people um, who were standing in the way of, of American empire. Um, Custer is not only protecting um, white Americans who have gone to um, South Dakota to uh, mine for gold in the uh, Black Hills, uh, but he's also out there patrolling and protecting the interests of railroad corporations who, as they lay track across the continent, uh, many uh, groups of Native American peoples will will attack and will um, confront as you would if someone was violating your your space um, without asking permission or anything like that. So he's actually out there protecting the, these kinds of interests. And when he attacks several groups of, of native Americans at the battle of little bighorn, um, he, he dies in that cause. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is not so much Custer, but his wife, um, Elizabeth, um, she goes by Libby. Uh, she, uh, spends the rest of her life after her husband's death, doing everything she can to commemorate her husband and to, to validate his, um, his service. And, 
she goes on speaking tours. She organizes the whole, uh, um, when, when the war department brings Custer's body back from the battlefield, um, to be reburied at West point, uh, in New York, he, she, she helps orchestrate that. She plans the ceremony. She does all kinds of, um, of, she writes books, uh, that basically argues that Custer is is not an agent of empire, but an agent of democracy or an agent of the of the republic. That he wasn't his death was not one of defending corporations and gold diggers um, out west. It was one of of protecting American progress and the progress of democracy. And her, uh, she's, she's very good at doing this. Um, and her, her memory of Custer is the one that sticks with us today. It's not very accurate. Um, it's purposefully misleading. I think you can understand why she would do that because she also is invested in her husband financially and emotionally. Uh, but it's but it is a memory that is uh, is misleading and and basically what she does is she claims Lincoln's promise. Um, her argument is that Custer should be covered and be remembered for his his valiant uh, soldiering on the battlefield and he he should be covered by Lincoln's promise and America should remember him and. The problem with that is that she twists this to then begin to say the implication here is that it, even someone who goes and fights and dies for American empire is dying for a noble cause. I don't think that that's what Lincoln was necessarily thinking about when he delivered the Gettysburg Address, but Libby Custer is able to open that promise up and to insert her husband into it. Um, in a way that mm -hmm. that I think transforms the promise and the memory. Yeah. And I was, I was, I was gonna maybe ask you this uh, a little bit later, but but it seems connected, um, you know, to you know. Uh, so so I think I'll kind of ask it now. But basically, sure. I think one of the things I took away from your your book, um, which it just it laid out very clearly, was was how much we you know, what we learn and what we remember as memory today is really based on how institutions or people have, have sort of laid down that memory previously, whether or not that is, you know, whether or not it's accurate or whether or not it meets, you know, the reality, um, whether or not it met the intentions of, you know, people like, like Lincoln, as you're mentioning, but we're remembering it based on, you know, whether it's Libby Custer or others, um, you know, and, and that's just sort of the adopted memory um, today. Um, and so that, that seems really laced throughout your argument throughout the book is, and I, I think I thought I made this connection to vernacular memory that you talk about. I'm not sure if that's a direct connection or not, but could you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. So, um, so I'll define a couple of terms here maybe to help a little bit. So okay. uh, vernacular memory, uh, which is something that uh, John Bodner um, uses in his, his work, uh, is this, I think this is idea of unofficial memory. 
and the way that I understand that is that this would be like memory um, of that's alive, that is um, of the people, that is, you know, the kind of way that people have a working memory to get through their, their lives. Um, other uh, scholars have described this as a, so Pierre Nora, he's this French um, um, historian. He, he calls this um, a, a sort of melu de memoir or a, a living memory. Um, and the way that I use it in the book is um, I use it as a term called that I call communicative memory. That's really um, this German historian named Jan Osman's uh, term. But it basically all means the same thing. This is memory that is living. It can be communicated by people who experienced the events. It's kind of like a first primary, a firsthand account or a primary source. And it is the memory that, that people use to sustain their own selves. Now, that's different from what we might describe as official memory or what Jan Osman um, calls cultural memory. And here, an official memory is, is a memory that is created by like institutions like the government or the church or um, other sorts of people or institutions that may or may not have been there. Um, they may or may not have experienced it, but they're trying to create this kind of official memory that may or may not synchronize with the vernacular memory. So I see a lot of tension between vernacular memory and, um, and what I'm calling official memory or cultural memory. So the idea here is that I think this tension is how memory is created. They play off of each other. Um, the, the vernacular, the people who have lived through the events and who share these events with each other to, su to sustain their, their lives, they have an account of what happened that oftentimes does not match up with what the government or with what the church says what happens. And so they're often at odds with each other. Um, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, I argue, is part of this cultural memory. It may or may not necessarily speak to how individuals interpret the Civil War or interpret the war dead, but it's the beginning of this this cultural apparatus that officially um, says this is the memory of the past. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the problem with vernacular memory is that eventually all those people will die. And when those people die, their memories die with them. There's no way to sustain that life force, that energy um, of their memories. So cultural memory has this advantage in the long term, even if it does not have the advantage in the short term, um, in the long term, cultural memory can be sustained through monuments or books or, or um, you know, holidays or, or you know, media of, of various forms, and it can come to be the the dominant memory over time. So I don't know. I hope that kind of maybe clarifies it a little bit. I guess I would say in response that, yes, sometimes, particularly those who, who have this vernacular kind of living memory, they oftentimes can assert their memories very quickly. But a lot of times, um, the cultural forces 
um, can can step in and overwrite that kind of memory. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, and, and and in a sense, neither neither memory um, can 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 be correct uh, or or right if there even if there even is such a thing as a right memory, um, which is you know it's, it's a tough subject in some ways. That's exactly right. That goes back to sort of the the biological idea that I, I was talking about earlier, which I think is a nice metaphor for how society works too. Every time we recall something, we add something or we take something away because we're really talking about a lot of times the present. It's a coping mechanism to help us deal with the present. So as you say, it could be that neither memory that is actually correct, um, particularly if we think of memory as being different from history. If history is the attempt to document the past as it happened, um, memory oftentimes can be much more fluid and less accurate. Yes. Um, one other question before we kind of move on. Um, you know, did you get a sensing of if if the, you know, the 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 means of remembering whether it was sort of immediately after the Civil War and the national cemeteries being created, or you know, with Custer um, at, at Little Bighorn? Um, were, were the were the ways of remembering popular? Um, did, you know, did the did the public and, and in this sense the cultural sort of apparatus was was there support there for wanting to remember in that way? Yes. So the, um, yes, and again here it's kind of interesting to see how cultural memory and what we're kind of describing as vernacular or communicative memory how they interrelate. So the, the argument here is that there are, these two memories are often um, contradictory, except when it comes to thinking about the dead. So on the one hand, the dead, when we remember the dead, is very vernacular in the idea that we all must die. Unfortunately, it is the most democratizing process that we have in that everybody has to endure it. And so th- in this way, it's very much influencing the, the, the people and, and it influences everyone. Um, but it's also a very sacred moment, um, a moment that we think about the cosmos and about salvation and about um, all sorts of very sacred things. So the dead body becomes a very interesting place that's kind of rare in our society. It becomes a place where this tension between vernacular and cultural memory can actually coexist and influence each other. So I say that to answer your question, that um, what usually happens with cultural memory of the war dead is that when we have a lot of people dying in war, um, we, we see this phenomenon take place that it brings, at least for a period of time, the popular um, desires in, uh, into a conversation with what the government wants. Um, here again, uh, Gettysburg, the Gettysburg Address is not leading this argument. Lincoln is not leading this argument of we need to look after the dead. He's responding to all of these people who are begging for some sort of recognition and some sort of commemorative tradition. 
that he then is able to, um, to, to not to politicize, but he's able to, to incorporate that into this cultural process. The same thing with, um, with people like Custer um, or others is if you can show, in this case, Libby Custer does a great job of showing that he should be commemorated, that he died for a worthy cause. Well, then it becomes very um, easy for, for, for the population to rally around. So we see a lot of people um, supporting Custer's reburial particularly because of the memory that he died for American progress. Um, if we move forward in my book a little bit, not to get ahead too much, but the same thing happens when the USS Maine blows up in Havana Harbor to start the, the what I call the Spanish-Cuban-Philippine, uh, uh, sorry, the Spanish-Cuban-American War. And, and that is, everybody is tied to this battleship that blew up and everybody's questioning, you know, what does the battleship stand for? Is it, is it stand, does it stand for empire? Does it stand for spreading democracy? And, and so when you commemorate the soldiers who died there, you have this, this synchronization of, at least for a short period of time, uh, of, of, of the people and the, and the, the cultural aspects lining up together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and before we get to the main, um, the uh, just um, can, can, I want to make sure we touch on sort of the the dynamics of racism and gender uh, and the lost cause, uh, which you talk about a little bit in the first section um, in the post Civil War era specifically. So could you uh, could you discuss that a little bit? Yes, uh, I think here again, Libby Custer is not necessarily intending to um, do this, although she does come from this white Protestant um, American perspective. Um, But in essence, her kind of reframing Lincoln's promise to include um, soldiers of empire, if you will, um, creates an opening for Confederates uh, to retroactively um, be included in Lincoln's promise. And particularly, I think this happens leading up and, and then, um, it, it kind of fully activates in the Spanish Cuban American war and the Philippine American war in that we have, um, soldiers from the South and soldiers from the North fighting side by side in these places beyond the borders of the United States. And, they then can be recognized as fighting for a noble cause. Um, and as a consequence of particularly Southerners who fight for this noble cause, quote unquote, of, of empire, um, we then see that Confederates are going to say, well, we should also acknowledge the Confederate war dead who fought in the Civil War. And it's here where the lost cause becomes this, it had already been established, but the argument here is that the Confederates weren't fighting for, uh, to keep slavery intact. They were fighting for states' rights or other sorts of, of you know, ideas that, um, that they try to justify their, 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 their defense of. And, and they basically 
say, well, if agents of empire can be included in this memory, then so can agents of the Confederacy. And it completely flips um, Lincoln's promise on its head. Lincoln promised that Americans would remember the war dead who died for a noble cause to create a new birth of freedom, which I read to be about emancipation, about ending slavery. And here, by the time we get to the end of the 19th century, we have this this flipping of the memory to where now people who fought against emancipation, people who fought to keep slavery intact are now going to be recognized and now going to be remembered by the federal government. Um, We don't have slaves who um, died when they were slaves being having a national cemetery. Uh, but we do have Confederate soldiers. Now, um, when they die, they can be included in, in some of these sacred places. Uh, and so it becomes kind of this, this strange phenomenon at the end of the, the 19th century, where those who were purposefully excluded from cultural memory find a, a way through the auspice of empire to become included. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's built upon these racial sorts of ideas and lost cause narratives, but, but that's kind of what, what happens there. Yeah. And then there's the, the, the extension, uh, as you mentioned, the Spanish Cuban American war, there's, there's the extension then not just including, you know, soldiers of the Confederacy, but then also, you know, and, and you also, and we also already included soldiers of, of empire, continental empire, but now we're including soldiers of sort of over an overseas um, empire that, you know, came about because of sort of the, uh, a war, you know, heavily imbued with racism. Um, and so it seems like, you know, in the 40 years or so after the, after the Gettysburg address, it really has flipped, uh, you know, sort of Lincoln's initial intention on its head. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when we go to the Philippines, um, even even before that, when we're in in Cuba, there's this 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 argument that um, these these soldiers cannot remain buried in foreign spaces. They can't. They they fought in Cuba and they died in Cuba or in the Philippines, but they can't be left there. They have to be brought back home. And so there's these um, these extravagant um, attempts to document and recover and retrieve every uh, dead body um, from these 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 wars that happened beyond the, the the borders of the United States to bring them back to the the sacred ground. It's as if it's as if Cuba and the Philippines can't be sanctified. Um, the the dead must be brought back, and only then can they be sanctified. Um, in this cause. So it, it, mm-hmm. it does extend into these, these, these territories beyond, beyond the borders of the United States. Yeah. And, and so while we're on the topic, can you talk about um, the, those efforts uh, that you talked about two expeditions, uh, the Rhodes and the, and the Krogan expedition, um, which, which might be uh, you know, less known to, to some of the readers um, or some of the listeners, I should say, Compared to other um, efforts by the by the U.S. government in the in the 20th century, particularly to retrieve 
um, soldiers uh, who had fallen in, in foreign wars. Um, so can you talk about these two expeditions and, and, and uh, their connection in the book? Well, I think these two expeditions are very fascinating because I think they show, they illustrate just how unprepared the United States was to fight these wars of empire. They had no plan in place to recover the dead or to even document them. Um, and, and so as soldiers die and are buried in Cuba and, and then also on the, in the Pacific, um, as we get involved in the Philippines and soldiers die and are buried in the Philippines, there's this haphazard attempt to kind of document who's in the, the, the grave, but the people who are responsible are oftentimes local units um, who they're also fighting against an enemy. So they're not completely concerned with documenting everything. And so, so there's these records that the war department in Washington, DC collect. And then when the wars are over or when there's these kind of moments where um, there isn't a lot of fighting going on, they send out these expeditions to recover the dead. These expeditions are led uh, by non-military people, although D.H. Uh, Rhodes was, um, I think he was, uh, I think he was a superintendent of Arlington for a while, Arlington National Cemetery for a while, but he's a civilian contractor. Um, Crogan is the same way. And what they're asked to do then is to go recover the bodies of the dead. They have no procedures in place, no policies in place. They're using these very spotty records to do so. And so they do their best. I actually think they really try incredibly hard. Some of their efforts are amazing. Um, some of the hardships they have to um, endure to recover these bodies, but th there's just no way that they could recover. Um, everybody. Um, in Cuba, it's a little bit easier because it's closer to the United States. In the Philippines, it's really difficult because there's oftentimes hot spots all throughout the archipelago. So Rhodes has to go from island to island uh, to recover these bodies. And he can't even get a he can't even get the, the U.S. Navy to loan him a ship. He has to contract a local Filipino ship uh, to, to do this. And he's got to put all the caskets on board. And they basically go from island to island. And they, they arrive at an island. They disembark from the ship at like 5 in the morning. Rain or shine. They're going into the sometimes 30 miles inland to recover a single body. They got to carry all their tools. They got to carry the caskets with them. Sometimes they're being attacked um, by by um, uh, local um, people who are at, who are fighting against the United States. They uh, they sometimes can't find the grave because the evidence is so poorly documented. Um, then if they do, sometimes they recover the body, but it's just by chance. Sometimes they have to ask local people where, where was the body buried and local people who aren't interested in cooperating won't tell them. And then they have to recover that body, put the, they have to go through this whole process because they're afraid that, um, particularly if the, the soldier died 
and and the vast majority of soldiers didn't die from combat they died from disease um so if the soldier died from disease they have to disinfect the remains with the chemical process then put them back on in the casket and then bring them all the way back to the ship and then they do that again and again and again and again and it lasts for several months um and this is how they retrieve these bodies. Eventually, the United States will set up a morgue in uh, Manila to process the war dead. But here in the first couple of years, that that didn't happen. And um, Rhodes and Krogan, they're just they just cannot believe the um, the lack of process and procedure in in all of this. And so they make a lot of recommendations that will then be used. Um, in the First World War, uh, but here in Cuba, in the in the Philippines, there's they're inventing it, they're making it up as they go along. Yeah, and I think um, you know just just as bold an, an effort, uh, which you kind of mentioned already, is, is surrounds the Maine, uh, the the battleship USS Maine, um, and it's it's raising and, and then and then resinking, um, which which is all tied into this. Uh, expanding, you know, uh, nature of, of the sacredness of, of, of the cultural memory surrounding soldiers and, and their, their deaths uh, in support of empire. Uh, but so could you kind of tell the story of the, the raising of Resinki in the main and, and also why that's important for the cultural memory? It's a fascinating episode, I think, because the main of course is this is a U.S. um, uh, battleship. It's a, it's a steamship. It's got coal on board. And in the middle of the night, um, in Havana Harbor, it, it explodes and it sinks into the Harbor. And this is the single justification that the United States uses to declare war on Spain in Cuba, because they, the, the Americans argue that the Spanish sabotaged it. They blew it up. There's no evidence of this, uh, there's these investigations that take place, but they're incredibly biased they're, they're, and, and they're, they end up being wrong. Um, but this is the whole justification for going to war with Spain. So a lot of Americans have a lot of, 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 of their memories and of their energies connected to this, this battleship. Well, if we move on, you know, 10, 12 years after the war is over, the ship is still in Havana Harbor. And it's really problematic because it reminds Cubans of, of American presence. And, and a lot of Cubans aren't happy with it being there. It's also kind of blocking the harbor. So Congress finally gets around to appropriating money to remove the wreckage. And uh, it's a long, elaborate process. But basically, the War Department picks a bid where they're going to build a, a coffer dam around the wreckage and they're going to drain the water from the dam, uh, fix the ship up good enough to float. And um, they're going to do an investigation as well to see whether indeed it was in, on purpose or not. And uh, <laughs> when they do this, they, they uncover the wreckage and they see that all the, the, the steel is blown outwards. Um, none of it is blown inwards. So 
so the the argument here is that actually it was an internal explosion and and in fact this is probably what happened there there's lots of records of steamships they have internal they have spontaneous combustion in the coal bins and the fire can get so hot that it can melt through the steel and it probably then detonated the munitions um, and exploded the ship when this is um, discovered uh, it just sends a lot of people into uh, a fury americans across the country are really upset at this uh, process and um, so the government does a lot to try to argue no 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 this was spanish sabotage (laughs) It, it, it wasn't and then to kind of hide it they hide the evidence they they patch it up, they float it um, out of the cofferdam, out into international waters, and they resink it so um, that nobody can really document whether it was an accident or not. Um, but a lot of people have so much of a connection to this. Americans from all over the country, they write in, they want a piece of the ship before it's resunk. They want a piece of it. They want, you know, uh, the, the conning tower. They want rubber bands and pencils. They want, um, they want, um, well, some, some family members, there's actually, you know, the, the main for these 12 years while it lays in Havana Harbor is a coffin. There's still remains of soldiers, of, of, of sailors in the, uh, in, in the ship. And so there's a recovery process that takes place here too. And a lot of loved ones write in to, to try to, you know, secure their loved ones remains. So it's a, it's an elaborate process that goes to show that in reality this this battleship really illustrates how imperialistic American memory can be. Yeah, and was 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 the resinking of the ship um, you know seen as sort of a fitting uh, burial, for lack of a better word, um, for for the ship. Um, and sort of in line with what you would do with, with soldiers dying on a battlefield as well, or, or was there controversy around that as well? There's a lot of controversy. This is actually unprecedented, and um, it's never really been done before. Any of this salvaging of a ship of this size, it's, it's never been done before. So a lot of people are upset with it. A lot of people um, want to turn it into a, a memorial. Um, they want to bring it back to the United States and, and turn it into a memorial. Um, there are a few Cubans who want to turn it into a memorial in Cuba, uh, but um, most Cubans are probably um, dissatisfied with that. Um, there's lots of people who argue that we need to remember the Maine um, and include it as part of our commemorative uh, tradition. Here you could argue that the the War Department, at least, is beginning to really uh, assert itself more in the idea of cultural memory kind of pushing back against vernacular memory because the War Department is going to basically reject all of these calls, all these pleas, and say, nope, we've decided we're going we're gonna to resync it. We're, we're not going to turn it into a monument or a memorial. And um, it's pretty heavy-handed, you could argue. Uh, but it is very contentious. Lots of people are upset with this. Um, but when it's sunk, uh, when it's resunk, there's not much people can do about it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I find it you know interesting as I was reading this, um, which which isn't covered in the book, but just the connection between you know the uh, the, uh, the 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 raising and then resinking of the main versus you know a ship like the the Arizona in Pearl Harbor, um, and you know not you know sort of identifying that as this you know quote sacred uh, burial space. Um, where there's a memorial built on top of it and it remains and stays a ship, you know, sunk in the harbor. Um, and so this it's kind of an interesting, you know, dichotomy between the two, but very similar, you know, fates that they met. Yeah. And uh, I think it's fascinating because USS Arizona, of course, we have evidence of what happened with that. It clearly was attacked, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's no question about that. So that can be a fitting monument. Um you know, the, the main can't be because of the ambiguity surrounding its demise. Uh, but yeah, it's a fascinating connection. If we fast forward a little bit to the World War One era, um, you, you have some interesting characters, uh, Arthur uh, Bluthenthal, if I'm pronouncing his name correct, correctly. Um, you know, he do touch on his story as well as a Lieutenant Kiffin Rockwell, um, but for, for Bluthenthal, he, he's remembered, um, specifically, it seems like for his decision to go and fight, um, even prior to, uh, American belligerency, but he's, he might be remembered differently, um, he, here back at home. It seemed as if he, he fought for, you know, maybe some personal or self-serving motives or, um, or motives that weren't necessarily, you know, uh, patriotic, um, as they might be remembered. Um, uh, but uh, again, this, this idea of cultural memory remembers him differently. So could you talk about a couple of these characters and how they're in your, in your book, uh, in the story? Yeah, I think, I think what's interesting about people like uh, Bluthenthal and Rockwell and others is they have their motivations and I don't know necessarily, I mean, people make individual decisions and, their motivations oftentimes are very complicated. They maybe even contradictory sometimes. And, um, mm-hmm. but, but the memory of their individuals, they really don't have much to say about the memory. It's, it's everybody else who, um, writes the script of how they'll be remembered. You know, Arthur Bluthenthal, on the one hand, his parents are German immigrants to Wilmington, North Carolina. They're, they're a Jewish family. Um, and, um, uh, decides that he's going to volunteer for the, for the French well before the United States enters the first world war, he's going to volunteer for the French to, to fight against, um, his parents' homeland. Uh, he's going to fight against Germany. Um, th- there is this idea that he, definitely does not want to his his father uh, owns a store in Wilmington and and Bluthenthal does not want to work in this store he doesn't really want to be part of Wilmington he he may have had a love interest spurn him or the breakup may have been devastating he doesn't really describe his romantic relationship very clearly um he's he's also um an all-American football player. He played for uh, Princeton in um, what later will be described as the national championship team in, in 1908. He was the, he was the center. 
of he's he's had this uh, sort of fascinating life that now that he's in his 20s uh, his early 20s he, i think he's kind of you know um the 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 excitement of his teenage years and is is he's now being forced to think about what his adult life is going to be like and it's not as as interesting to him but he also does say that he's going to do his duty and he feels that he should fight for the cause of civilization and America is too slow in in joining this and so he's going to volunteer to do this and and when you read some of his letters they're not the most when he's describing his thoughts they're not the most noble um he's pretty disrespectful towards women he sees them as um for example uh, sexual objects to conquer he's he's um he's he's a child of of the south in terms of racial attitudes and he expresses those racial views a lot um in the people that he comes into contact with while he's uh, serving um, in, in, in the Balkans. Um, he, um, he has a lot of these unfortunate things, but what happens after he dies and um, he dies tragically, he, he actually um, joins in the, um, it's not the Lafayette Escadrille, um, but it's the American um, Flying Corps these, these Americans who join the French Flying Corps, um, they, um, he, he dies basically over, over Verdun um, in, a, in a plane trying to um, uh, direct uh, artillery fire. Um, when he dies, his family is devastated um, and the community of Wilmington, at least the elite community of Wilmington are devastated. And so what they do is they, they, they edit his letters. They um, they are politically connected, and they um, they recreate a sort of memory of their son that shows him as this uh, valiant individual. And I don't want to say that he wasn't heroic because mm-hmm. before he joined the um, the Air Corps, he was driving ambulances and he risked his life several times to. Um, uh, to rescue the wounded. Um, but what's left out is some of his racial views and his views on women. Um, and, and then he becomes kind of this, this hero for North Carolina. And I think that's because, um, people in North Carolina are, um, attempting to show that they, yes, may have been on the wrong side of the, of the civil war, but but they are um, valiant, uh, pure-blooded, 100% American um, people who contributed uh, to the war even before the United States entered the war. And so they use Bluthenthal as a way to, um, to document that or to at least assert that. And Kiffin Rockwell is very similar. He, he, he is a founding member of the Lafayette Escadrille. Um, and he dies um, in his uh, fighter plane too. And um, people in North Carolina do the the very same thing with him. Um, I think it's interesting because there's another man from North Carolina who's African-American. His name's Thomas Bullock, who, who 
looks a lot like um, uh, Kevin Rockwell. They they both went to. Uh, they were both educated well. They served in um, um, officer training schools. Um, they volunteered to fight. And Thomas Bullock dies in the trenches um, in 1918. He actually dies as part of the um, uh, the United States military, um, although in a segregated um, unit. But he doesn't get any recognition. He doesn't get any sort of commemoration. He doesn't get any uh, accolades whatsoever. Uh, Bluthenthal and Rockwell, who, who are white, they, they do. Um, so I think it's a kind of an interesting thing to, to look at how this, this cultural memory can be used to, to present specific narratives that communities are interested in, in presenting. Yes. Yeah. And I think you laid that out well. Um, you know, the, the idea of sort of raising up the memory of, of, of white heroes specifically, um, as you just touched on. Um, if we could just, we'll fast forward to, you know, after American belligerency in World War I, uh, and, the, and, the, and the country starts sending soldiers to France to fight, um, uh, obviously the military realizes it needs to, uh, to have the ability to um, to process uh, dead bodies um, better than, than it had previously. And, and there's the creation of the Graves Registration Service. Um, so can you just uh, touch on sort of its process um, uh, during and then maybe later after the war was over um, and, and specifically maybe talk about uh, the idea of sort of controlling bodies? Yeah, the Graves Registration Service or the GRS is specifically created to deal with this problem that D.H. Rhodes and others had when they did their tours of the Philippines and in Cuba. And that is, how do we document where the war, where the dead are? So they create this process based on prior experience, based on the recommendations of Rhodes and others to create a service that basically uh, took the role of documentation of the dead away from the military generals on the battlefield and and allowed for these 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 others to to document the graves so that that the bodies could be more easily recovered um it's a daunting task by the end of the first world war there are over 2400 cemeteries with american bodies in them um spread across 71 departements of France. And, and there are 15,000 isolated graves of, with American bodies in them. So when the battle takes place, the dead are killed. They're buried adjacent to a trench. The GRS comes in and documents them and takes note of where they are and creates files for this. And then they, um, and then when they're able to remove those bodies and bring them back to the United States or bring them, consolidate them into a cemetery, um, it's, it's a lot easier for them to, to do that. What I found to be pretty interesting about this process is it's, it's, um, uh, it's completely um, controlled in part because public opinion back home is so hard 
to it's so hard to explain to Americans why we're involved in this war in the first place. Um, it's incredibly destructive of human life. Um, we only serve the Americans only serve in the war for a few months, but proportionately, you know, per day served, there's way more soldiers killed than in the entire civil war. Um, so it's not popular and it's hard to explain. So the graves registration service is going to document the dead and they're going to move these bodies around from cemetery to cemetery as they consolidate them. But they have to do so in a way that doesn't offend the American public because the American public can vote and they can they can change the course um, of the war or of the of the politics. So they um, every time they they bury or rebury a dead body and some bodies are going to be reburied six or seven times. They take a photograph, but that that photograph is censored. Uh, the camera that has to be issued <laughs> to a specific person. And that person, once he has the camera, documents the the grave and then re- has to return the camera immediately. The film is processed in a GRS um, dark room. And um, this attempt to control the dead bodies becomes incredibly important to the War Department and to the Wilson administration, um, you know, to keep to justify the, the, the war. Um, even as soldiers are brought back home, they are not just delivered to Arlington. They're brought usually into Hoboken, uh, in New York and New Jersey. And, um, some of the bodies have been dead. You know, they, some of the soldiers have been dead for, you know, a couple of years. So the remains have deteriorated quite a bit and they won't let the public see them. They take them to a warehouse. They kind of dress them up in nice um, caskets. They'll, they'll put them in a new casket. They drape a flag over them. Um, and, and only then will they then be, you know, presented to the public or, or taken to a national cemetery. So it's a big uh, aspect of control, particularly because of the way that the war is going and how many people are dying and, and um, the politics around it. Yeah. And, and how would you rate their performance um, and sort of the public, uh, you know, the public satisfaction of how the GRS did? There's a lot of people who go, a lot of, let's say wealthier people who immediately after the war is over, they travel to, to France and they're not happy. A lot of them are not happy with the cemeteries. They feel that they're not beautiful enough. They feel that they're, the bodies are being disrespected. And in some cases they are, um, there's, um, cases where I talk about in the book, there's, they try to bring, this isn't from Paris. It's from Siberia when the Americans invaded Russia, but the, 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 the dead bodies were buried and then the ground froze over. And, and then the spring, they try to bring them back to the United States and they don't have a ship capable of, of trans they don't have a morgue ship or anything like that. So they use this freighter that has really low gunnels. So the, the sea water can, uh, can spill over the ship in, in rough seas and the seawater gets into the graves and they, um, get into the, uh, sorry, into the caskets and the, the bodies just become 
horrible. They smell terrible. Um, and they look even worse when they're taken off. And, and, the, and this is done right on the Hoboken Pier. So everybody sees this. This is really early on in the, in the re- retrieval process. And, uh, and, and, it, and it's just a disaster. Um, so they make a recommendation that they're going to they're going to refit these freighter ships and they're going to store the bodies in, in beer coolers. Um, there are some ships that have beer coolers on board. They're going to store the bodies in there to bring them back. And so they're, they're, they're taking these steps along the way as they as the general public um, finds out about how the bodies are being treated and then and then reacts. Uh, oftentimes negatively, then the war department is going to make an adjustment and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to try to do this better. And they're going to, they're going to document this better. So I guess what I would say is that a lot of people are not happy with the process. Um, particularly at the beginning, it's a process that the war department, um, takes time to, um, to figure out and to adapt to, but, by the end, when most of the bodies are brought back in the early 1920s, I think you see a lot more people satisfied with what the War Department is doing. In particular, a lot of the rituals that we have today with, um, you know, uh, military escorts to that escort the body to the grave. And there's oftentimes buglers and, and sometimes a 21 gun salute and at a cemetery in the interior of the United States where a, a, a soldier is being honored, um, the flags being rolled up and not being buried uh, with the casket. All of these things are developed during this process of returning the dead home from the, the First World War. And I think eventually they do an effective job of what I argue is is covering over the imperialistic realities with these Republican sort of ornamentations and, and, and dressings of, of democratic ideals. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on to your, uh, the final chapter uh, of the book, you, you kind of look at this changing um, nature of the U S empire by the time Woodrow Wilson leaves office and, and uh, Warren G Harding is, is coming in as president and particularly this idea of an empire based on corporate capitalism. Um, so can you, can you just describe how that relates to the concepts of death and, and dying for empire um, as discussed previously? And in particular, after also this is coming, you know, shortly after the end of world war one and, and before the tomb of the unknown soldier. I th- yeah. I think what happens is that as corporations get more involved in the process and the corporations cooperate with the governments to um, bring the dead home, to bury the dead. What eventually happens is that the, the middle class, even if they are somewhat dubious or even critical at the beginning, they, they align their views with this kind of new vision of a global corporate America. And you can kind of see this in the way that they commemorate um, the, the, the war dead. Um, and that, you know, oftentimes the middle class, like it or not, is, is sustained by the imperial practices of the United States. And gen- that, you know, that's generally speaking. Um, and, and so um, as long as um, the government and corporate elites can tie the war dead to this 
idea, even this idea of Lincoln's promise flipped on its head. If you can tie the the dead to a noble cause that that the dead have fought nobly for the the republic or even the expansion of the republic, then um, I think you can get a lot of people to to go along with it and to um, to to practice these commemorations without necessarily criticizing it too much. I think the Vietnam War was a moment where this began to kind of break down a little bit and you saw a lot of people protesting um, the corporate imperialistic nature of, of American soldiers and of the war dead from, from that war. Um, but, but that story is a little bit later on in the 20th century. Here at the beginning of the 20th century, it's, it's an effective triangulation between government elites, corporate elites, and, and middle-class Americans. Yeah. Um, as we close here, do you see any connections um, uh, or, or maybe a better way to phrase it would be what connections, um, if, if you would like to discuss this, do you see um, from, from your story, you'll basically coming from the, this idea of the good death to you know, cultural memory um, to then dying for, for empire. Um, do you see connections uh, to the modern day that, that we still have in terms of our uh, remembrances of, of soldiers and, and death and, and empire? Well, I do see. I think what's interesting about today I think is that a lot of these ideas are being realigned. Um, and in particular, they're being, re- being realigned because when the United States invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, it, it just became so hard to hide the imperialistic nature of, of these wars. And I think a lot of people began to think differently about I mean, how do you commemorate, uh, uh, you know, people who who die in a conflict in Iraq, for example, that that it's hard to justify, you know, the expansion of democracy there or or in Afghanistan, particularly as the United States has pulled uh, out recently. How how do you commemorate soldiers when um, when when the, the war is, is dubious for its democratic um, goals. Someone like Pat Tillman and the Tillman family, I think are kind of on the cutting edge of this new kind of commemoration where I, I think that they have actually challenged the government in a lot of ways because the government has not fulfilled its end of the bargain, I think is what a lot of their argument is. It's not fulfilled the end of the, uh, the argument. You, you sent soldiers to die in a war that may not have been noble. It seems to be imperialistic. And then, and then the way that they, um, the controversy around Pat Tillman's death, particularly in, in relation to his, his later political views, uh, the Tillman family basically had, told the George Bush administration, you guys did not fulfill Lincoln's promise and our son deserves better. And and so I think there's a lot of other examples of that. And I think a lot of Americans are 
beginning to sort of recalibrate this idea. Uh, how do we extend Lincoln's promise to these kinds of of military deaths? How are we going to do that? Do we have to refashion our commemorative traditions to do so? And I think a lot of that is, is up in the air. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of relevance um, to today. Yeah, and I, I study civil military relations and, and uh, you know, what, one, one component of that being just sort of the, the, the you know, this interaction between society and the military and the influence that the military may have on or within society. And, and uh, you know, in many ways, um, we're, we're living in a legacy as well as I see it as I, and I was, as I was reading your book, this struck me, this legacy, whether it's from the, the Lincoln era or the World War I leftovers, and, and obviously, you know, uh, not touched in your book, but the World War II has a, has a large uh, effect on the modern day story, but we, you know, there's this carved, carved out special place that, that soldiers or military service members have in society that, that may be unhealthy in, in many ways. Um, and that, that includes all the way up to death and, and after death in terms of whether it's special, you know, uh, hospitals that soldiers may, uh, pass away in or special cemeteries to be buried in special rituals, special, uh, commemorations and memorializations. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I sort of was able to, in some ways trace the connections back, um, you know, all the way back to, to Lincoln there. Um, and, uh, it, it's something, uh, you know, controversially, um, maybe not as controversially as it should be because a lot of those rituals are extremely popular, but, um, it, it is an off, out of balance um, way of remembering in our society that soldiers sort of have a, a a large special place compared to the rest of society. Well, yeah, I, yes, I, you know, government uh, military pensions as well a part of uh, of all of this, and and um, yeah, I think. I mean, uh, I think soldiers put their lives on the line a lot, and so I'm not opposed to commemorating them at all but i think there's a breakdown between i think to me the culprit is the government doesn't do a good enough job of explaining or justifying why these soldiers have to sacrifice um their 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 lives or have to go into these places and maybe they shouldn't maybe they shouldn't maybe 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 that is the issue here is the government is a, a abusing its power in vis-a-vis the Lincoln's promise. But I also think too, that you, you strike on an important point. You know, if, if we're going to commemorate soldiers who died for the noble cause of freedom, then what, what about all these people who died in the world trade center? Should they be commemorated? They died in a cause for freedom. Um, what about all these nurses, um, and medical, uh, professionals who've died, sacrifice their lives in this COVID crisis? What about teachers or, um, you know, firemen or policemen or, you know, public servants who sacrifice their lives, maybe in a different way from military personnel, but, but are doing the work of, of a noble cause for the nation, for the new birth of nation, of the, of the nation. And, uh, and I think we should recalibrate our commemorative rituals to include all of these people in meaningful ways 
And I don't think we do that because uh, very well because of the politics um, of of empire. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, I should say as we close the interview here that um, that there's much more in the book that is touched on uh, than we were able to ask in the questions here. Um, a lot more on, I feel like I didn't necessarily do justice to the, the class discussions uh, that you bring up in, in the book. So, the, uh, But they are there uh, for anyone uh, who wants to read further, uh, as well as racial discussions um, uh, and interesting uh, technological discussions as well. Um, it, to, to close, Shannon, are there any projects that you're working on now that you'd like to share with us? Yes, I am working. It's kind of like a part two, if you will, or a second volume, maybe. Uh, the project I'm working on now is called The Affinity of War, Traveling Memory, The War Dead, and the American Empire in France from 1923 to 1943. So there I'm going to deal a little bit with the Second uh, World War. And it's, it's, I've, I, was, I had a fellowship, a research fellowship to do research in France uh, a few years ago. And um, in this period in between the first world war and the second world war, I looked at all these uh, French language documents um, about the American battle monuments commission of the gold star pilgrimages and um, the American Legion pilgrimages and various other monuments. And I'm going to sort of, I'm going to, I'm basically finished translating the documents and I'm, I'm writing um, the American, um, the, uh, Society of uh, the American Community of Learned Society uh, gave me a fellowship to um, translate these documents, and and I've finished that now, and um, I'm I'm now writing a few chapters on it. I have about three or four chapters um, thinking about this Franco-American transatlantic memory and how how memory travels. <laughs> wow. Well, that sounds extremely interesting and, and pertinent, and uh, we'd certainly love to have you back on um, uh, to discuss it uh, once it's complete. <clears throat> I'd love to. That'd be great. Wonderful. Uh, so we've been talking with Shannon Bontrager, his book, Death at the Edges of Empire, Fallen Soldiers, Cultural Memory, and the Making of an American Nation, 1863 to 1921. Shannon, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciated the opportunity.